still in the book of Mark. We're in chapter 3 today, the Lord of the Sabbath, part 2. In Matthew's gospel, the two events, one that was spoken of last week and the one I'm talking about today, are all bunched together in the same basic passage. But here, there's a chapter break between what I preached about last week and what I'm preaching about this morning. And Mark must have known that I was going to be too verbose last week and that I needed to split it into two parts. And so fortunately, he gave me a break there. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let's dive right into that passage, and we'll start seeing what the Spirit will speak to each of us about as he illuminates his word to us. Another time... Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Now, you have to go back just a few verses to say some of whom, that would be the religious leaders, the Pharisees, some couldn't grasp something that was going on here. They were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Spoiler alert. He does. In verse 3, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. There's a key question here, and it comes to us in verse 4. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? And Jesus is showing through his interactions with the Pharisees what could be summed up this way. He's basically saying, hey, guys, I am the one who fulfilled the principle of the Sabbath. I am the one who is fulfilling everything that was predicted of me. I'm the one who is showing you the way back to the Father. I'm the one who can give you the soul level rest, the peace at the soul level that you cannot find in anybody else or in any other way. Allow me to put forward two logical statements that grow out of the Sabbath interactions, some of which we talked about last week, because there were rules heaped upon rules for the Sabbath observances back then, none of which really helped the people involved. It just made them feel more self-righteous and superior and allowed them to look down their noses at others. Here's the first logical statement that grows out of the Sabbath principle discussion. First, if you need the kind of soul level rest that we've been learning about that comes through the Sabbath, you have to go to Jesus. You have to go to him to get that soul level rest. You can't find it anywhere else. The second logical statement is this. If you think you've gone to Jesus but you're still not experiencing any of this kind of rest, then you don't fully grasp what it is you have in Jesus. 
I think there are some people, especially if you look at Paul's writings in the New Testament, when he recognized there were people who were, in a sense, nullifying the work of Christ on the cross because they kept trying to bring it back to works orientation instead of saying, no, you have to relax into his grace. You're saved by faith, but you don't do anything. It's all God's grace that's poured out to you. You just appropriate it by faith. You can't work yourself into this kind of grace and peace that he's talking about. So let me direct you to two other passages that I think are helpful as we try to grasp this understanding of what Jesus has in store for everybody who finds soul-level rest in him. Genesis 1, 31, it's the very end of the first chapter and the very beginning of the second chapter. The first passage, we're going to see what God has just done because this is where the Sabbath principle grows out of. God saw all that he had made. So we're talking about creation. He's just made the world. He saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So he's at the end of a very busy work week. <laughs> and then what happens next? Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed, finished. We're starting to get this concept that something is important. We're going to grasp that word finished because that's important in all their vast array. So by the seventh day, God had finished the work. He had completed it. And on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And then God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And immediately, I mean, you can get a six-year-old, and they will ask the question, did God get tired? No. The answer is no. God can't get tired. He is infinitely energetic and won't it be good when we're in heaven and we are infinitely energetic but he did not get tired so what is the meaning of this rest and why was it important for him to rest because we have I think an incorrect view of that term rest and we redefine it for ourselves instead of seeing it the way he has because we're subject to earthly limitations and we have these bodies that wear out and they get tired and we get sick and we have to sleep more and we get expectant we have to sleep more and all these things that happen to us that cause us to feel like man I need to rest because I just got to restore my vitality that's not why God rested it wasn't to restore his vitality so what is the Sabbath for then what does God say after he finishes each portion of his work here's the clue he looks at what he has accomplished and what does he say it is Good. He steps back. He's observing what has been finished, what has been completed, and he says, mm, that's good. And then when he gets to the very end of his extremely productive week, then he looks at the whole thing and says, and that's very good. And that is what it means to rest. So to rest the way God rested means that you become completely satisfied and you're able to step back and appreciate what has been done, and you can bask in God's goodness and say, that's good. Now, at one level, this is going deeper than just the surface level. At the surface level, we experience that because he gives us the gift of work on earth, and it is a gift. It was originally given as a gift. It got perverted because of sin that entered the world, and so then it became more difficult. Thorns grew up. You had to work harder to get things out of the ground, all that. But work is still ultimately a gift because there's that sense of satisfaction. The reward comes from having done a good job. And so we know that when you finish painting a room, 
Some are better painters than others, and some have paint all over them. But when you step back and you look at all that you've done, you can say, yeah, that's not bad. Or if you sew a piece of clothing, or if you make a quilt, or if you do something crafty with your hands, you can step back and look at that and say, that's good. You can write a report for work or school, and you can edit it seven times and finally get it just right. And you can get ready to turn it in. You think, that's an A+. I just know it. That's a good piece of work. Or you can shovel a long driveway that's been filled with snow, and you can say, I hope I don't have to do that again. I'm moving to Florida. But that's good. You can get to the end of a season of work and say, that's good. And it's that sense of satisfaction. And this is the word that I think we need to associate with rest. God was satisfied. He was satisfied with that, and he said, it's good. There's a sense of satisfaction because something is completed, and that's where we start to unpack the real meaning of the Sabbath principle. Another passage. We're going to see something in the book of Hebrews. Some of us have discussed who we think the writer of the Hebrews might be. It's an interesting discussion. In the passage, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the gospel. He's talking about what it means to believe in Jesus. That's the context. And in this discussion about the gospel, he says this, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. So he is reiterating the fact that God is the one who established Sabbath rest and there is still one yet to come. Just as in that song, Unus Dei, that we listen to during communion, there's the revelation worship in which they're singing those things, worthy is the lamb, for he is holy. That is yet to come. And so is the Sabbath yet uh, rest. It's yet to come. It doesn't mean that when we lie down in repose that we're going to take an eternal nap. It means that we're going to finally enter into the satisfaction that everything has been accomplished, and we can say it is very good. That's the Sabbath rest that we're going into. It's the soul satisfaction, a soul-level rest and peace. Well, there are many pictures about what it means to be a Christian. If you ask somebody, what does it mean to be a Christian? We get a lot of different answers, and it's, we need them all because it's so deep and it's so complex that you can't just adequately describe it in one sentence or with a couple of analogies. So this is one of the analogies that we can look uh, toward what it means to be a Christian, and that is through this lens of the Sabbath, the Sabbath rest. It helps us get a fuller picture of what it means to be a Christian. It means that you look at your life the same way that God looks at his life. Because when we're in him, we're going to be experiencing a similar kind of rest and satisfaction of having something been completed that he did. So God worked, and then he rested from his work. He was satisfied. He rested. He basked in satisfaction. He said, it is good. Got it? That's the concept. So when you live your life walking in step with Christ, then you too can get to those places. And right now, it's just glimpses. But God provides plenty of glimpses when we finally step back for a minute and we sense it. It's just like a hint of what is the foretaste of something coming that's going to be much bigger and much better. And we'll think, oh, yeah, that was good. That was really good. That was so satisfying. I mean, I sense that when we're singing together as we did this morning. And the praise team has just given it their all because they mean what they're singing. And I can hear the rest of you. And I, I get to the end of a song like that. And there's something soul level in me that cries out and says, yes, I want more of that. 
guess what? We're going to have more of that because there is a Sabbath yet to come, and it's going to be very good. So the little glimpses that God gives us here on earth are just a foretaste. It's just to keep the carrot dangling for believers to say, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Let me refer again to an excerpt from the article I quoted from, from Judith Shulevitz, the Jewish lady who grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, she didn't want to have anything to do with church after she was a teenager because she was forced to go to synagogue and she thought that was for the birds. And then she started having a Sabbath weekend crisis in her life and something strange caused her to go back and start hanging out with some of those religious people again. And she discovered that there was something fulfilling and satisfying about going to public worship. And as I mentioned last week, and I'll mention it again, Judith, if you should ever hear this, I love you, honey, and I'm so glad you came up with these insights, and I would love to share with you how I came to the conclusion that Jesus is Messiah, and he's got a fulfillment for you that's even beyond what you have grasped. I'd love for you to find him someday. But she found truth, and the truth is scriptural, and so it's God's truth. She's just not quite where I am yet in terms of the Messiah, but she's found some great truth. She spoke about all the vast numbers of frenetic leisure activities, soccer, dance, lacrosse, you name it. We've got all these things as swimming. I mean, there's so many things that our kids can get involved with now. I did it. We drove Clarkie all over the country playing soccer when he was in soccer days. So I know you understand what that's like. And some families would try to do that thinking, man, we're going to become so fulfilled we're going to become so satisfied because we filled up our lives with meaningful things. It's not to say that those things are bad. I'm glad that my son had some great years of athletic ability that he put to good use, and it was enjoying for us. In fact, it was probably the first 90 minutes of the day when I could stand there and not have to be action-packed with my job because I had to focus on a game for a while. So these things are good things, but when we start to try to use those good things to pack them into our lives to the exclusion of a Sabbath, then they begin to subtract from what God has intended for us. She says, this is Judith, not even our group leisure activities can do for us what the Sabbath could once be counted on to do. She makes her point that all these busy activities that we've thrown, packed into our lives to try to find satisfaction will not help us find the kind of rest for the, in, the eternal and internal murmur that says, you're not good enough yet. You still need to keep doing this stuff. It's a self-condemnation that comes from all of us. I know where that grows out of. We know where it comes from because the enemy wants us to believe that we're not good enough. Of course, that's why Christ came, so he could put his cloak of righteousness on top of us and say, you're good enough, but not because of what you've done. It's because of what I've done. And then she says, I like this quote, the Sabbath is to the weak, what the line break is to poetic language, it's the silence that forces you to return to what came before to find its meaning. And that's what we've been doing in Growth Encounter on Sunday mornings, looking at Romans. And I love that because we'll say, oh, wait a minute, we have to go back up here to find the meaning of this right now. It's that silence, the line break. In the Psalms, there's this term, Selah, 
And many scholars think that that was probably for that purpose. It was a line break and it was a pause so that people could ponder what they just sang and let it pour in on them because sometimes we need to meditate on it momentarily before rushing ahead to the next line so that we can fully grasp what God has just spoken to us about. Joy and I figured it out when we were in Scotland that we didn't know how to do that well because there's something in the UK that it's a subcultural unwritten rule in church that when we finished our last song we're from America you know we're off to go eat lunch and so they said amen and we're popping up in our seats and we're going over starting to shake people's hands and we're looking around and we realized nobody's moving they all sat there and they were all selahing they were resting from what they just heard and absorbing it and meditating on it and we looked around and thought uh-oh, and we sat back down again, <laughs> and it was probably a good two minutes, which for an American is an eternity. Two minutes of not doing something? Uh, I got to look at my phone or something. I mean, I should be doing something, right? So we did that, and we learned by the end of our first month there, that's what you do. At the end of a service, we sit silently and absorb what God is trying to teach for us. And I think that Judith is starting to understand that sometimes God needs to give us the page break, the Selah in our lives. And that's weekly what a Sabbath can be for us as believers. And it helps us foreshadow something even better yet to come in the eternal soul rest. She says this as well. Religious rituals do not exist simply to pr promote togetherness. They are designed to convey to us a certain story, and I love this, about who we are. And I thought, yes, Judith, you've got it. Now read the New Testament. Because the Sabbath is based on God's created rhythm of rest, we are reminded by our observance of the Sabbath that we're honoring the one who resides in us and who regularly reminds us that there is more to us than our work. We all need that. The physician and missionary Albert Schweitzer said it this way. He caught this concept well. He said, if your soul has no Sunday, it becomes an orphan. See, the problem with our lack of satisfaction in life and with ourselves is not the presence of work. Oh, my goodness, we've got plenty of that. In fact, we create more work just to try to make ourselves feel validated or to feel satisfied. We've got more work than we know what to do. But what we lack is the selah, the line break, the periods of silence so that it's not just a constant cacophony of noise in our lives. That's the Sabbath. Another great quote from Ms. Shulevitz's article. We have to remember to stop because we have to stop to remember. And it's that stopping by looking what came before that reminds us who we are and whose we are. And it's so easy to start forgetting that and letting that slip as we get drawn into all the other things, many of them good, but none of them eternal in their focus. She says, we all set impossible standards for ourselves, and then we feel that inner murmur that says, 
you keep falling short. She reminds us that it's counterintuitive for us to hit the rest button in order to restore our sense of belonging and to still the murmur, to silence the murmur. It seems counterintuitive to us. But what we're trying to do is like saying, I'm on a treadmill and I'm going to conquer this treadmill. You know how I'm going to conquer it? I'm going to go faster. You're not going to conquer the treadmill. The only way for you to get out of that treadmill, what you need from it, is to get off the treadmill. There's a Sabbath principle here that God builds into his rhythm of rest for every single one of us because he's constantly needing to remind us who we are. So, when we get off and we get back into relationship with him through our songs, through the scriptures, through the things that we do as a part of our Sabbath rest, then he sets the reset button because we get pointed at true north once again, fixing our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith rather than keeping on the treadmill. And then he's able to tell us it's finished. It's good. Not because you've earned anything, but because you've recognized where your true value comes from. You've gotten back to that place again. Good for you. And pastors might consider this job security. But God considers it a necessity of the rhythm of rest because we all forget, even pastors. And I've seen a lot of pastors burn out because they're doing all this stuff to try to achieve rather than recognizing that Sabbath is for every one of us at the soul level. Jesus is the only one who finished the work. He's the only one who can say, come unto me and I will give you rest. He's the only one who can say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, come unto me. So what about the Pharisees? Why did they go out and plot with the Herodians to try to kill Jesus? Jesus' healing was in direct defiance. It said he looked at them angrily and then said, stretch out your hand. It was in direct defiance to them. Why is that? Because they had started to replace man-made standards for trying to live up to what they thought would earn God's favor. And Jesus says, you've missed the Sabbath point. You've missed it completely. It's only because of what I've done for you when I hung on the cross and said, it is finished, as we just sang a little while ago. That's when the veil was rent in twain. That's when we had direct access to the one who now pleads our case for us because he's at the right hand of the Father. All that was accomplished through Christ. And then here's something cosmically ironic. You know what those people did? when they nailed Jesus to a cross and killed him? You know what they did? They validated, they confirmed that the Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. He fulfilled everything at that moment. So they were thinking that they were killing this man who was doing all this stuff and taking them away from their man-made validation points. And all they did was validate that he is indeed who he claimed to be, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. They ratified the new covenant. They didn't. Christ did, but you know what I mean. Those who rejected Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath were kind of described in Isaiah 57. But the wicked, meaning those who reject God, those who reject Jesus, are like the tossing sea. And if you've seen some pictures of the tossing sea, I mean, it just is constantly in motion. Which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, no soul-level rest for the wicked. That's been sort of 
couched as a bumper sticker saying there's no rest for the wicked. This is where that's coming from. There's no inner peace for those who are feeling like the sea that are just constantly in motion, but they never rest. They never stop. But on the cross, Christ finished what was necessary for us to find that peace. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I can't imagine the restlessness that Christ had to have experienced on the cross. It had to have been excruciating. Why was he so restless? Because he was taking every bit of our restlessness onto himself. All of those sins, all of those tries at self-validation that fell short, everything that was apart from God and fell short, and he took it all on, on himself. Why would, why would he do such a thing? Because he needed to finish the work. So when he said, Telestai, it is finished, he wasn't saying, my suffering is finished. He was saying, my work is finished. The work for you. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It does not mean I'm going to try really hard to be like Jesus. I'm going to manufacture new ways of working diligently so that I can earn his favor because then we're right back to being just like the Pharisees. That's not what being a Christian means. It doesn't mean I'm going to do my best Jesus impersonation. That's not it at all. It means I rest on his finished work of redemption so that when he sees me, he can say, it is good because it is finished. So we can rest on his unchanging grace. We can look at the Father and say, I know now that you can accept me, not because of anything I've done, but because of your son. Thank you. Everything that is necessary for your salvation has been accomplished. Selah. Isn't it good for us to ponder that? To bask in it? To absorb it? To think about it and to think, yes, Lord, I catch myself being so frenetic. Help me to still the murmur by getting off the treadmill and reestablishing the rhythm of rest that you have given me so that I can be reminded whose I am. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. I'm going to wrap up here. Imagine when you're standing before God and imagine you not trying to defend yourself by explaining to God all the good things that you did on the earth, but imagine that you're saying, God, I recognize that it is finished not because of me but because of your son. And then he looks at you and he says, yes, it is finished. It's good. It's very good. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Isn't it good to rest in his unchanging grace and to place our faith in the living hope? Father, I pray that all of us would start to comprehend more and more all that we have in Christ Jesus because it seems that we tend to forget and we tend to without even recognizing it, get back into a works-oriented mentality. Help us to relax into your grace. And thank you for the Sabbath that you build into our lives so that we can take those pauses and be reminded what came before and be reminded of the story that helps us remember who we are. We are your beloved children. And we just want to love you back because you are indeed our living hope I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.
Amen.